When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I woke two days ago, having slept for 24 hours. My dead hand, crusted with the drying remnants of whatever corruption weeps from my bite wounds and stained pages of writing littering the floor around me. At first I thought to destroy it, but somehow I can't. I tried not to spread it to others, but my hand, normally bereft of feeling, has begun to throb and ache and I know the reason just as I know it will stop, at least for a while, once I hit submit. So, forgive me, as I do not know the meaning or consequence of the strange account my hand wrote while I slept. And for any that wonder how I came to be in this position of telling these strange things, the story, You Saw Something You Shouldn't Have, will explain how I got here. It's not a window. It's a door. When my sister gave birth to Emily, it was a big deal in our family. My husband died last year, and I doubt I'll ever bear children of my own, and even seven years ago, Emily was the first grandchild in the family. She was a sweet and beautiful baby with wide green eyes and a bright, cheerful disposition. Even as an infant, she had personality, and this only grew as she got older. I live in Alabama, and my sister lives all the way in the outskirts of Waco, so even though we are a close family, I only get to see my sister and niece at major holidays and for a few days every summer when they come stay with me, which is what made her suggestion that they come visit last month a bit strange. We talk on the phone every Sunday, and that evening we had just been chatting about nothing in particular, but I could tell that she was stressed or preoccupied. She said her husband, Rich, was very busy at work lately, but that should ease off by late April. And she said Emily was doing well in school, though she was a bit too focused on drawing these days. She said it with a laugh, but I know my sister, and something was wrong. I almost asked, but I thought better of it, figuring she'd tell me when the time was right. Within a few minutes, she'd brought up them coming to visit. I was surprised, but happy, and at first I assumed she meant during Emily's spring break, but she meant just a couple of days later. At this point, I couldn't help myself, and I asked if everything was okay. Had something happened with Rich? Was Emily okay? She gave a brittle laugh and said everything was okay, but she wanted to see her big sister if it wasn't a bad time. I told her it wasn't, and by Wednesday afternoon, there they were. I had just seen Emily at Christmas when everyone had met up in Fort Worth for the holidays. At the time, she'd been the same bright, joyful girl I'd always knew. She would flit from person to person, telling jokes, listening to stories, always ready to talk, but never rude or demanding. 
I know she's my niece, but she was perfect. But when they arrived at my house in March, she was different. Her eyes looked dull, and while she still talked and was polite, very little of her old spark seemed left. After we got her settled in the living room, I took my sister into the kitchen to grill her. What was going on with Emily? Had there been some trauma or signs of abuse? When did this all start? My sister, to her credits, was patient with my barrage of questions. She said that it had started about two weeks after Christmas, and no, she didn't think it was due to anyone abusing her. That's while she was more subdued, Emily still ate okay, made good grades, didn't get too in trouble except for her drawings. I had given Emily a case full of drawing chalks at Christmas, and while she seemed only mildly interested at the time, sometime in mid-January she started using them more and more. My sister said that she would draw on windows, on walls throughout the house, and much to her own dismay. She'd scolded the girl, exclaiming how hard it was to get that kind of chalk off the walls and forbidding her from drawing on the walls outside of her own room. For a time, it worked. The child focused her efforts solely upon her own walls, drawing windows over every open space she could reach before going back to wipe away earlier, more crude works. This continued for weeks, and a clear pattern emerged. She was drawing the same thing over and over again. Not just the same type of thing. A window. But the same one. My sister said if you compared them side by side, they all looked nearly identical. But she realized over time that details were being tweaked, uh, refined. Almost as though she was focusing the lens of a camera to get a clearer picture. What was strange, aside from the obvious, is the window panels were largely blank. She expected a child's drawing of a window would mainly be about what was on the other side, but the panes contained no details other than the cut and imperfections of the glass. At this point in talking to me, she realized how long we'd been in the kitchen, and with a panicked look, she rushed back to the living room. I followed, and we found Emily where we had left her sitting on the sofa with her hands folded, staring off into space. I crouched down and spoke to her for a few moments about the fun we would have while they were visiting, and she responded normally, overall, but it was still very muted. I made them dinner, and then later on, she was tucked into bed with her promise to wait and start on any art projects in the morning with us. A few minutes later, me and my sister were back on the sofa, drinking wine and talking. I told her it was best to let Emily keep at it until she tired of it, as it was almost certainly just a phase, and she was welcome to draw whenever she liked in my house. She seemed unsure, but finally agreed, hoping the child would move past it quicker with all the fun distractions we could provide. We talked about going to the zoo, the amusement park, the movies... Eventually, with the help of wine, my sister began to relax, and I steered the conversation away from Emily. We talked about work, and then local gossip from our respective towns that meant little to each other, but was still good for a laugh. 
And then we talked about Rich. I had known Richard for two years before my sister did. We had met in a sophomore intro to philosophy class and quickly became inseparable. He was from Tennessee originally, but had lived all over the world and carried an air of exotic intelligence and wisdom about him. We were best friends and more, and we pushed each other to be more and be better both physically, mentally, and spiritually. When I was a senior, I invited my sister to come visit as she was starting to look at colleges. I introduced her to Richard, and within a month, they were dating. Within a year, they were married. And did I ever have misgivings or sad nights about it? Yes, of course, but I understood it was for the best and was necessary. It was meant to be, and I had to accept it. As we talked, she began to drift off, fighting to focus as she told me about how Richard had grown more distant lately and wasn't concerned about Emily as she thought he should be. I commiserated in a vague way, and her chin drooped to her chest, and she finally fell asleep. I considered that sitting like that, bereft of the lively, sparkling eyes and wryly curling smile that had always made her so charming, she looked like she was dead. A pale, dead toad. Banishing the thought, I kissed her on the head, gave her a shake. We stumbled to bed, and the next day, our week of fun began. Zoo, park, movies, go-karts, we did it all, and Emily participated dutifully, but with no real joy. And every afternoon when she returned home, she went to the guest room I had designated as her art room and drew on the walls. The drawings were... remarkable. Whatever they had been originally, they had become almost indistinguishable from the real thing now. And Emily worked amazingly fast, but with such a level of detail, it still took hours to complete a version before starting another. My sister wanted to stop her, but I held her back from interceding, and by the fourth day, I'd run out of fun suggestions, and we decided to just let her go until she burned out, so long as she rested and ate. On the sixth day, Emily woke me in the blue hour of early morning when I looked at her. She nodded and led me to the room. All had been scrubbed away except for one last example in the middle of the back wall. I examined it closely and then bent down to smile at Emily and kiss her forehead. I told her we would wait and show her mama that night. Emily slept most of the day, but she went outside and played in the afternoon, which delighted my sister. That night, after a dinner where Emily ate and talked more than she had all week, we took her mother up to show her the art room. She entered slowly, looking left to the scrubbed wall and center to the impossibly perfect drawing there. And then her gaze continued its trajectory to the right and landed on Rich, who stood there, beaming at us. Her eyes widened and Emily ran forward to hug her dad. My sister took a step forward and then caught herself. She asked what he was doing here. Was anything wrong? He'd taken a deep, crimson length of chalk out of his shirt pocket and given it to Emily with a nod. She ran back to the drawing as he stood and smiled at his wife, saying it was really good to see her, to see all of his girls. My sister glanced at me, but I barely noticed. 
as my focus was on Emily as she finished drawing a red knob on the expertly replicated dark gray frame she'd labored on the night before. She'd barely finished lifting the chalk from the wall when the knob began to turn. I felt the buzz of excitement that had been building in me for days swell and explode. I turned to my sister, not able to resist stealing a glance and shared smile with Rich in the process. It's not a window. My sister blinked confusedly, her face paling now. What? I fought down the manic urge to laugh. <laughs> it's not a window. It's a door. As I spoke, the knob had completed its third slow revolution and the door opened. First, just a crack, and then enough to let something in. The lights dimmed at its entry, which was a momentary kindness for my sister, as I don't think she truly saw what dragged her back in. I saw too late that the door was swinging back closed, and neither Rich nor myself could reach it before it shut with a brittle snap and became chalk on the wall again. I pounded the wall with a curse, but Richard put a comforting hand on my back, telling me to check the lines. That would be okay. Stepping back, I pulled out the piece of glass I had received from Greenland six weeks earlier, part of an original door. Looking at the drawing through the glass, I could see the lines of powder fading, seeping away like water at the slight imperfections that existed. I told Rich the same, and he smiled. It was okay, he said, because we had a sweet little girl who would keep trying until it was just right. He looked down at Emily, who was now holding his hand as she returned his smile and nodded. Feeling overcome with love and pride, I went and hugged them both. We would keep going until the door was perfect and stayed open. And what a glorious day that would be. These... Periods of productive slumber continue, and the latest writing is much longer, so I'll have to break it into several parts. I have no real updates on my own condition other than the easing of my dead hands throbbing as I henpeck these words with my other hand. If you're unfamiliar with how I arrived at this point, I talk about that journey in the story You Saw Something You Shouldn't Have. Thank you again for your time and attention. It is a bright spot in this deepening well of darkness I find myself in. FM Rider I drive around at night because I can't sleep normal hours anymore. I used to. Back when I was a teenager, I was always the first to call tonight. Not early, you understand, but... By midnight, I was usually out. When my parents died, I was in bed asleep. I got the call to come to the hospital to identify the bodies and pick up my sister Mary. There was no one close to do any of it. Our grandparents on both sides were dead, and our mother's sister Beth was a reoccurring character in many meth-fueled dramas that played out across various parts of the state. Even if I could have found her, I wouldn't have. I was 24 at the time, and I was old enough to take care of an 11-year-old girl. 
Two years out of college, I had a relatively good job as a shift manager at a large food distribution plant only a few miles away from my apartment. The work was dull, and I didn't want to do it forever, but it paid the bills, and for the time being, it gave me the flexibility, since I could work out my own schedule for the most part. This last point was key now. Looking down the hall at the impossibly tiny and shell-shocked little girl sitting in a molded plastic chair next to an older, heavy-set woman, my heart broke a little. She'd never known how much she was going to miss out on. Our parents weren't perfect, of course, but as I'd gotten older, I'd come to realize how great they were. They were caring without being smothering, funny without trying too hard, encouraging without being pushy. Best of all, they believed us and not in the willfully blind way you see some parents do. They knew us, understood us, and pushed us to be the best version of ourselves that we could be. I realized I still needed to identify them and that I couldn't put it off, couldn't see Mary first without having to explain why I had to leave again. So I stopped and turned around, heading back to the nurse's desk and following the directions down to the coroner's office adjacent to the morgue. They only made me look at the faces, which weren't badly damaged on the surface other than some dark patches and a spot on my father's face that went down too far where his cheekbone would be. The cuts and scrapes that were visible had stopped bleeding some time before, and the bodies had been cleaned at least... Above the sheet. Below it, well, from what I was being told, the car accident had been terrible. How Mary had survived, let alone without anything more than a few bruises, was anyone's guess. After I signed the forms, a squat, clammy man thrust at me with robotic condolences. I went back upstairs to get Mary. She started crying when she saw me, jumping into my arms and hugging me tight. The woman seated next to her eyed me suspiciously. You her brother? She glanced down at the clipboard on her ample lap. Mike? I raised an eyebrow. Julian. She smiled thinly and nodded, and I saw it had been some strange kind of check that I was the right person. I already didn't like her. I looked down at Mary. You ready to go? She nodded against my chest, and as I turned to go, the woman stood, her smile gone. Hold on for me, son. There's some things we need to go over. Is there someone else we should call? Your Aunt Beth, maybe? Turning on the woman, I tried without much luck to keep the anger out of my voice. She'd been picking Mary for information at a time like this. No. Beth is a junkie, and I don't know where she is, and my parents named me her guardian in their will. She recoiled slightly, but then narrowed her gaze and slightly pushed forward. That may well be, son, but we still need to... We don't need to do anything. You need to fuck off. The first few days were really hard for the both of us, but within a few weeks, things started feeling somewhat normal. I changed my work schedule so I was always home from when she got out of school until I dropped her back off the next morning. I saved some money up, and by the time summer came, she was able to go to a day camp at the days I worked. Mary had always had friends, 
but she made a couple of new ones at the camp that lived just a few blocks away and went to her school in the grade below her. I didn't know what a little girl's life was supposed to look like, but Mary's seemed like it was getting closer to it anyhow. She was going to the movies, hanging out, having sleepover. It was taking time, but things were going good again. Then I got a call a little after eight one night when Mary was at a slumber party. The mother, Anne or something, said that Mary's nose was bleeding and it wouldn't stop. The edge of panic in the woman's voice told me it was bad. I got there and took her to the hospital in less than 20 minutes, and less than 20 hours later, we knew that she had a brain tumor. Very lethal and inoperable. It went quickly. Less than two months later and she was dead, only a few weeks before her 13th birthday. I felt some anger, sadness to be sure, but mainly I felt scooped out. I went through the motions of living, but I didn't really think about what I was doing. I didn't think about anything, and I didn't sleep very much anymore. So I started driving at night. I lived an hour from what most people would consider the edge of the desert, but I wound up going there most nights. The lack of people and lights, lack of noise and reminders of people living lives, it helped somewhat. Most nights I'd be back home by four, collapsing into a fitful sleep for a few hours before going and getting up for work, but... There were times I'd stay and watch the sunrise climb past the edge of the world, turning everything the color of fire. The thought of that fire comforted me in a strange way. I also started spending more time on the internet, looking for hobbies and things to read, anything to occupy my thoughts for a bit. There were so many odd corners online, and as time went on, I started diving deeper and deeper into pockets of esoteric groups. Conspiracy theorists, occultists, ufologists, you name it. Most of them seemed sadly desperate to me, as though they wanted something to believe in and were grasping for whatever lay close at hand, just needing a lifeline. None of it stuck with me much, and after a few months I had given up almost entirely. I found my lifeline on the roads. And the radio. As much as I didn't want to see people, I oddly developed a habit of listening to the radio when I was driving. What didn't matter that much, though, I found myself gravitating more and more to late-night talk radio as time went on. There was a surprisingly large overlap between radio crazies and internet crazies, and something about that was strangely comforting. It was one late night in August, nearly 18 months since Mary had died, that I first heard the woman's voice on the radio. I was turning the dial idly, knowing there was at least 30 minutes before the next good talk show was on, when suddenly, out of the static, I heard a woman speaking. Her voice caught me before I really heard what she was saying. It was raw with emotion, some combination of terror and desperate sadness that hit me hard. I don't know how long but I hope someone can hear this. Please, if you do, 
Please help if you do. I don't know. The signal faded out and didn't return. After another few seconds of driving, I stopped and turned around, trying to find the signal again. No luck. I went back and forth a few more times, but nothing. I couldn't sleep when I got home. Over the next few days, I couldn't get the thought of the strange transmission out of my head. Reason told me that it was nothing. Either part of a movie, commercial, or a radio play, or something equally benign and boring. But I didn't really believe that. It sounded too real. Uh, maybe I just wanted to believe it was, because it was a mystery, a distraction. I enjoyed driving around tonight, roaming the desert roads, but it was in a detached way. It was a form of therapy, and it did help some, but never brought me real joy or excitement. This didn't either, not exactly, but going out that night was still the first time I looked forward to anything since Mary died. I did some research during my lunch break on my phone, trying to figure out how far away that broadcast could have come from, and it was disheartening. I knew it was on the FM dial when I heard the transmission because I remembered some of the stations I'd passed, and according to what I'd read, while FM signals didn't typically travel as far as AM and relied more on line-of-sight reception, they could still be broadcast 60 to 100 miles depending on the location and power of the source. And depending on occasional atmospheric events, some signals would get bounced way further for a time, even from another part of the world. But I didn't think that was the case. It didn't feel right, and the woman had sounded American with a strong accent that stood out to me, but that was still a lot of ground to cover. I started to get down again at the realization that I was unlikely to ever know where the voice had come from or what it meant, if anything. But still, I didn't have anything better to do. And if I wanted to spend a few nights listening out for it, what was the harm? Thinking about the best way to do it, I could feel my anticipation growing again. After work, I went to a bookstore and found a book of maps that covered a thousand square mile area of the region. The maps in front were big and more general, but as one went deeper in, they zoomed in more and more on bigger roads and towns, while also filling in some geological and historical points of interest that lay in the vast brown and gray seas of desert lapping at the edges of every highway and county road. I ran home and spread open the map book, trying to figure out exactly where I'd been when I'd first heard the woman. I'd grown familiar with these roads the last few months, but it was still hard to say. Driving aimlessly like that through the dark, tired and not paying attention, and then having your attention awoken by a strange voice on the radio. It didn't exactly foster for the best recall of landmarks and mile markers. Still, I was pretty sure the road I was on and could narrow the stretch to probably a 30 mile span. But still, I had no way of knowing how close or far I was from the source, so I had to assume up to 100 miles in every direction. So, over 200 square miles. It was a lot. 
I used a ruler and a pencil to draw out the distance on one of the maps midway through the book. Even out in the desert, that kind of area covered five small towns, the edge of two medium-sized cities, and nearly 50 roads. On the one hand, it was daunting. At the same time, the complexity of it, of driving these routes, keeping track of where I'd been and still needed to go, all while searching for some elusive signal, it was appealing in a strange way. So I headed out. I decided to start with the same stretch of road. I'd alternate driving and pulling off for a bit, rolling the dial back and forth, ears pricked for any sign of a woman's voice. But there was nothing. Just the standard stuff and the dim crackle of static in between. After a couple of nights of this, I started expanding the search, going further and further out from that center point each night. It was a slow process. The roads didn't conform to my desire for an organized grid search, and even with the large gaps that keeping to the roads led, after a week I was only 50 miles away from where I had started. I wasn't discouraged exactly. I still looked forward to going out every night, but I did think of another angle that might be helpful, so I started trying to think of ways to figure out what the signal could be. I started with the commercial idea. I took a couple of nights off from writing and combed the internet for any current playing ads or descriptions for movies or TV shows that might be compatible with what the woman was saying. There were a few potentials, but nothing that panned out. Then it occurred to me that I knew someone who listened to the radio as much as I did. Ricky was in his late 50s and could generously be considered a functioning alcoholic. He was a line manager at the plant, and while he was only semi-reliable as an employee, he was a warm and likable guy. He'd been one of the first to talk to me when I went to work at the center, and one of the very few that continued to be friendly once I got promoted. Despite his age, Ricky was always off doing something on the weekend, and he had a myriad of hobbies. One of them was listening to talk radio at all hours of the night. I went to him when he was on his lunch break, and he grinned when he saw me. What are you up to, Cap? Come to give me a raise? I laughed. <laughs> I can't give raises. Why would you get one? Hard work and ingenuity, man. I'm always thinking about the company. I gave a smirk and a wink. <laughs> I'll pass that along. You got a second? He chuckled and gave me a nod. I told him about driving and hearing the voice. I didn't tell him I kept going back there. Tried to make it sound very casual, just... Wondering if he'd ever heard anything like it. When he said no, I told him about the internet research I'd done to make sure it wasn't just a commercial. He nodded again, more thoughtfully, clearly more interested now. Hmm. Have you heard of a numbers station? Shook my head. He smiled a little and continued. They're weird. Basically, at different points in time, since people have had radios, there are these strange stations that'll pop up. Sometimes briefly, sometimes for years. They'll play strange music or have strings and numbers being repeated, hence the name. That's weird. Where did they come from? A lot of them are suspected to be a way to send encoded messages, some old school espionage. But some of them, no one knows. People are trying to triangulate where the signal's coming from, but it'll move on when they get too close. Real spooky stuff. 
I haven't heard anything exactly like what you're describing, but there's definitely some weird shit on the radio from time to time. Ricky smiled expansively, proud to show off his obscure knowledge. A search of the internet told me that Ricky was telling the truth. I wasn't sure how I'd never heard about the phenomenon during my days of surfing the strange back alleys of the web, but I also wasn't sure how the information that existed helped me. This seemed different than most of the accounts I read, and again, I couldn't even rule it out as a one-time fluke transmission of something boring and innocent. I went back out again that night, but I could feel my enthusiasm waning. And then I heard the voice again. I managed to get power to the transmitter again just for a little while. I need help. I don't know exactly where I am, but it's underground somewhere. Some kind of building or a bunker, maybe? I don't know. I... I'm really scared. I'm getting weak. It's been a long time since I've eaten. I'm trying to ration, but I'm running out of food. Please, come help me. Oh, God. I listened to the recording over and over. I decided early on that if I'd ever heard it again, I'd be ready to record it. I thought about using an app on my phone, but worried it would freeze up or an ad would pop up at the crucial moment. So I went to an office supply store and bought a small digital recorder. I kept it charged and nearby as I drove, and thankfully remembered it when I heard the woman's voice over the car speaker again. The sound of her panic-stricken voice was so sad and lonely, but suddenly felt like the car was filled with rich, oxygenated air, sharpening everything and giving me a light buzzed feelings as her words washed over me. I tried to pay attention to what was being said, but I had been so close to giving up that the sense of euphoria and nervous desperation to make sure it was recorded overrode real comprehension. The angry buzz of static cutting off the message brought me back, and I fumbled with my recorder to play it back again. All but the first couple of words were there. I listened to it several times more carefully and then began driving in the vicinity back and forth, tweaking the dial a little but not overly much. It made sense any transmission would be on the same frequency, but I couldn't be sure, especially when I hadn't paid attention to the frequency the first time in my desperate fumbling to get the signal back. But there was nothing. Over several days I memorized the recording even dreaming of it the little bit that I had slept. Then, on the fourth day, I heard her. I remembered a, a sign that is outside somewhere. It said something about tatters, I think. Look for the sign in a door, a strange door that goes into the ground. I think I hear... The voice stopped, but instead of static, a strange song began to play. It sounded as if it was being played on some kind of flute or piccolo, and if it ever looped back on itself or repeated, I couldn't tell it. I'd stopped the car as soon as the voice started triggering the recorder again. After listening to the music for several minutes, I felt a new hope flare in my chest. If it would only keep playing, maybe I could use it to narrow down where the signal was coming from. For the next four hours, I went in different directions, carefully tracking which directions caused the signal to get weaker and stronger. Eventually, I reached the point where I could get closer on a paved road. 
Spotting what looked to be something between a dirt road and a trail, I headed for it and began to work my way out into the desert. The moon was bright and high in the sky, lighting everything up like some kind of silver and blue daytime. The path curved this way and that, but eventually it petered out at a clump of desert scrub. But I was too close now. I pulled out the pocket radio I'd gotten when I picked up the recorder and dialed into the frequency. There was a strange doubling effect of the music as the radio came to life, making my head swim for a moment until I shut the car off. Grabbing a flashlight, I headed out toward the signal. It occurred to me absently that once the signal was clear, there should be little to no way for me to tell if it was getting stronger just by the sound of it. But it was, as I said, an absent thought, pushed away casually as I fumbled through the dark shadows cast by the cold desert moon. The fact remained that I could feel it getting stronger somehow, and I knew I was heading in the right direction, very close to my goal. And then I saw the door. It reminded me somewhat of the doors I'd seen in old movies of small airplane hangar doors. Not the ones for planes, but for personnel. Metal and utilitarian, but with small curved at the outer frame, so to introduce an element of whimsy. The door was clearly old and rusty, but it didn't appear to be locked or secured in any fashion. More strangely, it was sunk into the side of a rock rather than a building. Almost as though someone had just attached a fake door to a giant boulder. At first there seemed to be no signs at all, no indication that this was the place, but then I noticed a small metal sign in the shadow of the boulder. I reached and picked it up carefully. Suddenly, the image of a rattlesnake underneath it, burning brightly in my mind. But there was no snake. Just a rusted sign, half rotten from the elements. Turning it to the moonlight, I could see the name that had been painted on it. Tattersall Security. I already knew this was the place, of course, but that just confirmed it. I felt my heart leaping in my chest as I reached for the door, the terrible certainty that it would be locked and impenetrable filling me with dread. Instead, the latch offered no resistance, and the door swung open easily to reveal a cold, yawning darkness. It was a tunnel, traveling down and curving out of sight to the left some forty or fifty feet away. I felt a trill of fear. And for a moment, I thought about calling for help, getting someone else out there to help me look for the woman and help her. But a dozen reasons and excuses for not doing that crowded my mind as soon as I had the idea. I debated internally for a moment, but just for a moment. And then I went down into the dark. The tunnel became a more proper hallway around the corner. Concrete walls and ceilings with metal mesh underfoot, the hallway then opened out to become much wider. The edges of the walls just visible in my flashlight's reach. The air was thick and coppery, making every breath seem like an effort. I thought about calling out, but the weight of my fear and anxiety kept me quiet as I went. I began to wonder about the purpose and practicality of such a big, empty subterranean space. What was the point? Had something been stored here? If so, there was no sign of it. Speaking of signs, there were none here. No labels or icons, no symbols of any kind. 
made me uneasy. Something wasn't... Just then I saw the far wall, four doors set within it. These were the first doors I'd seen since entering this area, and I felt sure behind one of them I would find the author of those transmissions. Two of the doors were larger cargo doors, so I focused on the smaller, outermost doors first. The first one led down a much smaller hallway with several turns before coming to what appeared to be a series of cubicles and outer offices. Again, there was no writing or other signs of what was done here. No sign of people ever being here at all. I mean, there was furniture and all, but no messy desks or mementos. No indications of hasty retreat or a controlled shutdown. It was almost like a stage or movie set that was exacting in its attention to detail, but still felt artificial because it had no spark of life. Still, I searched the area thoroughly. I tried a few lights and computers, but no luck. The power seemed dead, which made me wonder if air was getting recycled or if I was breathing the dead air of years or decades earlier. I pondered distantly if I could be breathing in primarily carbon dioxide, not realizing it, passing out and dying in here, smothered to death by this place, but... I pushed it aside and continued back to the main hall. When I went through the other door, I saw that it led to a large area filled with crates. Most were empty, but some were partially full of MREs, clothing, and various equipment I didn't understand the function of in the slightest. In the back, I saw a set of double doors and went through them into another hallway. There were a few rooms here and there along the hall, their purposes apparent from the items they contained. A small kitchen mess hall, several rooms with beds and lockers, one larger space that seemed to be a rec room, complete with a couple of decks of cards and an ancient-looking pool table hulking in the shadowy back corner. Everything still had the air of artificiality to it, though. Every feature that should show signs of people and be somehow comforting was wrong in some intangible way and more worrying for it. I would periodically try the radio, but I got no signals inside this place at all. Everything was dark and silent, and I found it hard to shake the fear that my flashlight might peter out and leave me lost and wandering forever in utter blackness. But it was still burning bright, pushing back the darkness in a blue-white comb before me. Soon it highlighted another set of doors, and beyond them another set of stairs going deeper now. I went down the stairs, feeling the concrete growing slicker as the air became moist and sticky. There were four flights with no other branches off to other levels before the bottom. At the bottom, another set of doors. These, solid steel and secured with three thick bolts that appeared to be operated by large gaskets set in a row along one side. But the doors were open now, and I saw that the hall beyond them was much different. It appeared to be made of some old stone laid carefully in some strangely ornate fashion. It reminded me of pictures I'd seen of Mayan and Aztec structures in some strange way. The air was thin and freezing here. As I moved forward, I saw that a gray mist hung limply in the air, refracting my light making it harder to see past into the darkness. For a moment... I thought I saw something, or at least sensed something, but then my entire mind was waking up by the searing pain cutting through my foot. 
Screaming, I instinctively crouched and grabbed my leg, dropping the flashlight in the process. As the light pinwheeled around, I again thought I saw a glimpse of something beyond the stones, but then it was gone and my brain was on fire with pain. Fumbling for the light, I grasped it and shined it down on my foot. Three metal blades and a triangular formation rose two inches from the top of my right foot like bloody stalagmites. Feeling faint, I passed my light over the floor and saw several more outcroppings of sharp metal hidden within the mist. Cursing, realization settled over me. My foot was bleeding badly, and I needed to get out of here right now or I could die. Soon. Standing again slowly, stifling little screams, I stood again and prepared to pull my foot free. Gripping my leg at the knee with both hands, I began to pull up. The pain was incredible, and my foot seemed no closer to being free. I tried again, but while I felt my foot lift some, it seemed stuck somehow. Feeling around with shaking hands, I probed the blades gingerly, looking for some sign of what the problem was. I felt my stomach twist as I felt downward curved barbs along the lower portion of each blade. They had hooked into the muscles, bones, and tendons of my foot and didn't want to let go. But it didn't change anything really. I had to get out of here and get help. There was no way but pulling my foot loose. There was no one here to help. I suddenly felt a giddy rush of hope. Maybe the woman really was here, and if so, maybe she could help. I began yelling, explaining why I was there and that I needed help. The words barely echoed at all, as though the stone walls were swallowing them. I tried again, my voice cracking with the strain and my growing terror. I could feel coldness starting to press in on me as the loss of blood started its inexorable process of pulling me down. Cursing again, I cast aside the hope I'd held for a moment and gripped my leg again. I had no way to cut my foot or pry at the metal. I would just have to tear it free or I'd die here in this tomb. One. Two. I yanked as hard as I could, feeling more than hearing something pop in my foot as it came free with pain so blinding that I faded out for a few moments. When I came back, I was on the ground, but free. I thanked God I was wearing a belt, and cinched it tight around my thigh before trying to stand again with limited success. The next hour was terrifying and excruciating as I hopped and crawled my way back up, weary of other traps and feeling the cold darkness crowding the edges of my vision. The pain and adrenaline dilated time in such a fashion that before I knew it, I was back on the highest level in the long, giant hallway, then stumbling across the desert toward my car, then inside when I had a moment of panic at the realization that it was my accelerator foot that was injured before tucking that leg under, tightening the belt around my leg again and using my left foot. I like to say that I made it all the way to the emergency room by myself, but that'd be a lie. I passed out and rolled to a stop about eight miles from the nearest hospital. When I woke up, I was in a hospital bed. My first thoughts were confused and fearful, wondering what had happened to put me there. 
And then I remembered, and I felt such a wave of relief and gratitude that I started crying. That's when she came into the room. She looked to be in her early 30s. And even if it wasn't in the middle of some kind of survivor's euphoria, she would have been beautiful. She smiled as she came in, and I embarrassedly tried to scrub my eyes with the heels of my hand. I felt very weak and disconnected from my body, and my head felt cottony. Painkillers, I thought, thankfully. So you're awake, huh? It's about time. She smiled warmly at me. You know why you're here? My mouth felt dry and thick. Uh, fucked up my foot, right? She laughed and nodded with a grin. You did indeed fuck up your foot. And I want to hear about how that happened, when you feel up to it. I nodded again. Okay. I felt myself blushing slightly despite the medication. What's your name? Her smile widened a bit. Allison. What's yours? <laughs> Don't you have it on my chart? Allison's brows drew together. I do. You had your wallet on you, but I want to make sure you didn't lose so much blood that you forgot something important. So, what's your name? Her serious expression and tone made me laugh unexpectedly, sore throat protesting. After a moment, I nodded and croaked. <laughs> okay, okay. It's Julian. Still looking serious, she said, Cool. No memory loss. She broke into a grin, but it fell from her face after a moment. But seriously, you did get badly hurt. The doctor won't be in until tomorrow, but there's a lot of damage to your foot. Good news is you get to see me for at least a few more days. I was in the hospital for six days, and when I was released, it was with the diagnosis of permanent nerve damage and muscle damage to my right foot. Loaded down with antibiotics, steroids, and pain meds in my complimentary plastic sponge bath tray, I was wheeled back to the front of the hospital. I was glad to be out, but I felt a desperate, gnawing sadness that Allison wasn't there. We'd talked a lot during my time there, and I wanted to keep seeing her when I got out, but I was worried she wouldn't want to, that I'd somehow misread the connection that seemed so strong between us. But when I asked where she was that morning, I was told she wasn't working. After a couple of hours of paperwork and me trying to stall, one of the other nurses patted me on the back and asked, did I need them to call me a cab to get home? But out at the front of the hospital, there was no cab. Instead, there was a beat-up looking hatchback that had seen better days idling at the curb. And then Allison was getting out and coming around to help me get into the car. Thought you were getting away from me. No caps for you. I was grinning at her like an idiot, but I didn't care. After I get home and take an actual shower, I want to take you out on our first date. She was easing me into the passenger seat smoothly, but she stopped a moment, her eyes widening slightly before she smiled. <laughs> I think we've already been dating the last couple of days, but we can iron out the details later. We were leaving together... A few weeks later, and were married by the next spring. After some saving and vacillation, we decided to move to the northeast. 
There was a clinic in Vermont that had a nursing program, and Allison had been fully accepted in, and I'd got a job at a local small-town pharmacy. The old pharmacist decided he liked me and encouraged me to go to pharmacy school, letting me work part-time and study during slow periods. Before I knew it, we'd been there for five years, had a house, a dog, and were insanely happy. She'd mentioned the idea of children, but I told her about Mary and that I wasn't ready yet. She said she understood, and I believed her. I had told her about the transmissions, of course, and what I'd found in that strange place. I never suggested going back out there, and neither did she. There were times that I felt like the entire purpose of those strange nights of driving desert roads, going through that door, getting hurt, was just what led me to her. There were other times that I still felt the strange call of that place, and unresolved mystery and unfinished business. But more than that, that feeling of something being wrong. It was a feeling that I couldn't understand or control, and as time went on, it grew stronger. It invaded my sleep, with my dreams leading me back to that strange stone hallway, something watching me from deeper in the darkness. But instead of terrifying me, it just made the drive to return and finish something that much stronger. So when I got word through some old work friends that Ricky had died of a heart attack, I used it as an excuse to fly back. Allison wanted to come with me, but I convinced her not to miss work and that I'd be back in a couple of days. When I went back to the car after the graveside service, I'd already had my change of clothes and supplies with me. It took a couple of hours. But even without the transmission, I found my way back to the dirt road, to the door, to the room below the earth. They seemed undisturbed since I'd left. The only notable new feature was the trail of old brown blood I'd left escaping last time. I'd followed that trail back down the stairs into that hallway, taking care to watch for blades on the floor or any other trap. I walked with a cane now, and it was a constant reminder of watching where I stepped. I saw the spot I'd gotten hurt at. Blood crusted at the barbed blades, and I moved past it. I had the sense of not being alone, but I didn't see anything. And then I saw the far wall. Completely bare and featureless, other than the same types of ornate stone that swirled around in every direction. There was nothing here. Sighing, I almost started to leave when I stopped myself. Something still wasn't right. Something was being kept from me, so I stood still, closed my eyes, and tried to concentrate on being empty and opening my senses, my mind, ready to accept the truth. At first, there was nothing. And then suddenly, I didn't know what direction I was in, and I wasn't aware of my body any longer. I had a body, or so it seemed, and I had eyes, or so I thought, but... Everything was dark and cold and strange. And yet, I could still see. I could see some gigantic monstrosity I was somehow a part of, melted and merged into this vast horror. 
I felt the cells of the green-gray modded mass of flesh shifting constantly, containing the DNA and imprints of hundreds or thousands of different organisms, the wills of those beings still not fully absorbed, sparking periodically along the surface of its slick, slimy surface like fireflies dancing above an open sewer pipe. I could hear some of the thoughts of the other lights, and I could hear the madness in most of them. But most of all, I could hear the titanic black will of the other, whose being stretched back beyond the confines of this space into some other realm, but whose mass and power here continued to grow. Its will sounded light and musical, and I instantly recognized it as being the song I'd heard, the song that had led me here. This memory led to others, and I realized that what I was seeing, what I was experiencing now, was the truth. I never left this place. I was led here and fell into this terrible thing's trap, whatever it is, and have been made part of it as it fed off of me as it had others. It digested its meals slowly and filled them full of false memories and lives like a spider filling a fly with venom. The more I tried to discern truth from lie, the more I realized I didn't know what was real anymore. Had my parents died? Had I ever even taken care of Mary? Did Allison exist? I just didn't know anymore. Somehow that thought terrified me more than everything else. But still... If it pacified its victims, this thing might have some weakness to the other wills it consumed. If I could just remember long enough not to slip back into the lie, I could fight back, maybe even stop it. I just have to... I wake with a start in my seat as the stewardess is announcing that we're beginning a final descent into Montpelier Airport. Allison is waiting at the terminal when I land, and after hugging and kissing, we head to the car and start the drive home. She asks about the trip, the funeral, and I tell her. I want to tell her something else, about a dream I had while I was gone, but it's faded out of my grasp. Reaching out, I grip her hand and give it a squeeze. She squeezes it back. I'm glad you're home. I look out at the dark trees passing as we drive along, and then I turn back to her, studying her silhouette and the green glow of the dashboard. Yeah. Me too. I want to give a quick thank you to all of my $5 patrons and members. Absinthe Alice, Alice E, Amethyst, Demet, Carolyn, Christina Smith, CT, Deborah Tychus, Elizabeth Watkins, Ellis G, Furious Weasel, If in Doubt, Flat Out, Justinia Zaromsky, Karen Parrott, Kat, Lindsay Pruitt, Melody Evans, Melissa Berwick, Myla, Nicholas Moore, Nikki Parsons, Ray Clegg, The New Ongum 24, Tiger Princess, and Victoria Stepp. Thank you all for your continued support.